Слава усім, хто працює заради свободи, усім, хто воює заради свободи, хто робить усе, щоб свобода ставала міцніше і щоб терор, саме терор, програвав. Кожен тиждень менше можливостей для Росії, кожен тиждень більше можливостей для України. As 2024 dawns, there is a palpable trepidation in the air. As Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine approaches the two-year mark, Vladimir Putin's autocratic and imperialistic regime is acting like time is on its side. And as Kyiv and its Western partners assess the lessons learned from last year's disappointing counteroffensive, this high-stakes war appears to be at an inflection point. So what happens next? Well, our guest this week believes that we have reached a moment of truth in Ukraine, a moment of truth about the stakes, a moment of truth about what needs to be done, and a moment of truth about what is possible. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in the magical Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russian Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. Welcome back to the vertical, James. Happy New Year. Despite everything, our planet has managed to make yet another successful revolution around its star. Well, thank you and Happy New Year to all. Happy New Year. So, James, your latest article, which was quite excellent, published this week, is titled The Moment of Truth. And we'll be discussing that article today, and I'll be including that in the show notes. But to get us rolling, why do you believe we've reached such a moment of truth? And what does this mean in practice? Because what you wrote tracks a lot with what I've been hearing from people I've been speaking to here in Washington. Well, from the very beginning, Vladimir Putin and the Russian leadership proceeded in starting the war and prosecuting it on the premise that the West lacked the singularity of purpose the steadfastness, the um, willingness to accept risk and sacrifice required to actually prosecute this war and bring it to conclusion on uh, acceptable terms, acceptable for Ukraine and the West. And this has always been the premise. This has always been, if you will, the gamble that in any prolonged and difficult trial, the West's congenital difficulties, uh, which the Russians believed profoundly, would prove telling. And my perception is not simply that Moscow believes we have reached that point. I believe that uh, we have reached that point and that Putin's premises are now being vindicated. So we are at a turning point now in which the West's will to continue supporting Ukraine is going to is going to diminish and this is going to lead to to Russian gains. Like how do you see this playing out on there? I want to drill into the points you make in your article, but before I do so, what are what do you see go, going on right now? We could be more open-ended about the future and we will. But talking about the position we have arrived at it's essential to remember what Russians who make war never forget. 
the essential maxim of Clausewitz, that the aim in war is to impose your will on the opponent. If you don't have will, you can't oppose it, can you? From the very beginning, if you look not just at the policy, but the tonalities and cadences, particularly of the Biden administration, uh, I am perhaps unfairly singling them out because American power is uh, of such enormous importance in, in this uh, equation that one has to focus more on Washington than on others for all the deficiencies. But the cadences, the rhetoric, the thinking of the Biden administration from the beginning was conspicuously enlightened. It was always based on the premise that a combination of firmness and reasonableness and unity in the West would demonstrate our seriousness to Russia and gradually create favorable outcomes or at least outcomes that would be constructive. In other words, we could stay inside our comfort zone and maintain security in Europe and maintain fundamentals interests, uh, fundamental interests in Ukraine. And the reality is, no, we can't. We can do these things, but we have to get out of our comfort zone. And we, and we have been absolutely unwilling and possibly unable to do that. And as I think I said later in the article, the issue today is not so much whether the West is doing what's required, but whether it is capable of it because of the kind of entity the liberal democratic West is. So, I mean, that is one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it, uh, and again, this is central to war, it's taking the enemy into account. There has been, to this date, where it is needed, no serious objective uh, recognition of just what sort of adversary we have, uh, of, uh, of this adversary's aims, its determination, the sacrifices it is prepared to make, the depth of its brutality and cynicism, um, and the conclusions that come out of all of this. Yeah, this and, is something I... Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish up, James. I don't, I don't want to start ranting. No, please, Brian. Go no, well, I, what I, one of the things I wanted to drill down into, because this is one of the parts of the piece that I, I, I really appreciated, where you talked about the stakes, what the stakes are in this war, and why the West isn't having the real debate about the stakes. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read yourself, you back to yourself. Um, and then we're going to drill into it. You say, what are the what are these dangers? Russia's irreducible interest is to control the core of the Russian empire, however its leaders choose to define it. Its enduring ambitions are preeminence in Eastern Europe and the Baltic, dominance of the Black Sea, and the detachment of Turkey from the West. An unsentimental realist of the old school would argue that by conceding Ukraine to Russia, the West would place itself in a stronger position to contest the rest. A rigorous rebuttal would proceed from the premise that Putin has resurrected Muscovy and that Ukraine has become part of Europe. The attempt to coerce Ukraine into joining Muscovy, where there could be no other means of doing so, would produce irresolvable conflicts and monstrous consequences whose acceptance would fray and ultimately dissolve the West itself. That is precisely the outcome that Russia seeks, yet no such argument takes place. You you very cogently there laid out the argument of the realists, which I know you and I both disagree with, and the other, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the counterpoint to that. Could we drill into this a little bit? Because I, I 
do get a sense that people uh, understand the stakes um, here, or at least smarter quarters in Washington and other Western capitals. Um, in Estonia, where you are located, I know people understand the stakes. So let, let's drill into this a little bit. Okay. Well, first of all, um, I can't resist saying, as I said to a Ukrainian friend today, these um, the people you just referred to quoting me are realists, uh, as realists. They're so-called realists. That's why I usually put the, the, the term in brackets. I, I, I consider myself a realist. Now, we are already witnessing the monstrous consequences, but if we end the war without accomplishing essential objectives, we're then going to see the rest. You can't accomplish your aims until you have the presence of mind, the integrity, and again, the will to, to, to state what those objectives are. We've been unwilling to do that. If you listen to official discussion in Washington and the language used, it's a kind of gelatin. An admirable skill at shifting away at every single point where clarity is called for from any clear statement of what our objectives need to be. And then there is a second factor, and it comes back to fundamentals of war again. If you will the end, you have to will the means. A simple tabulation of how much of X and how much of Y we have been supplying to Ukraine is absolutely irrelevant to the business of winning. And again, that presupposes a definition of what we mean by winning. There has not been at any point, at least publicly, a rigorous effort either to state what the objectives are or to match means with aims and to look at the adversary and see whether those answers are actually appropriate and speak to the problem. And this has been going on, as uh, we know now, for two years, and we have still not got any closer to doing this. Uh, we, we are still talking in very vapid, vague, formulaic language. And I think you know, this, is, this is already having immediate consequences. First, I perceive that it has made the um, internal disaffection in the United States and the disenchantment on the part of much of the Republican Party and much of the country that much deeper. Because on the one hand, you have this nihilistic, almost barbaric Trumpian clarity. And on the other hand, you have the opposite of clarity. There is no clear alternative case being presented. There is no effort to take the offensive against opponents. And the result is that even very strong Republicans, like the three House Congressional Chairman of Foreign Affairs Intelligence Committee and Armed Services Committees, when they, they present very clear language about what needs to be done, it's quite remarkable. They present in their report a definition of success which is far more crystalline, far easier to understand, far more direct than anything that has come out of the administration. How can the administration win its argument against Trump if it is unwilling to formulate an argument and aggressively promote it? And then you look elsewhere. This is not the first time we've been here. If you go back to the 1930s, most people would not recall that Neville Chamberlain instituted British rearmament. He did from the end of 1936. By 1941, the UK was producing 
as many tanks and as many aircraft as Nazi Germany was. Most people don't know that. Neville Chamberlain never doubted that the UK would be at war with Germany if France or the Low Countries were attacked. He issued a guarantee to Poland. Do we remember him for any of that? No, mm. because his conduct from beginning to end was feeble and lent itself to ridicule, and he was ridiculed. And in the end, not only he, but the UK was underestimated by Hitler. So what you see is there's a direct relationship between hesitancy, vacillation, self-doubt, self-deterrence, fear and the projection of fear, everything we've seen from this administration, you know, Biden saying Putin is threatening to use nuclear weapons, and he means it. What a wonderful thing to say to Putin. That's really going to discourage him, isn't it? There is a relationship between that and the growth of cynicism and defeatism elsewhere. One of my British military friends said to me today in commenting on what is happening in the Red Sea, and his point was about the United States generally, he said, the fear has gone. That's a very worrying position for us to be in, where the fear has gone. It's not only Russia we have to think about, but Iran and China. China. I'm sorry, reasonableness proportionality, all these things we love to talk about and we see as our virtues, these things will not impress the adversary. The only thing that impresses the adversary is the belief that any aggressive step you take is going to be far more damaging to you than to your targets. So what you seem to be saying, James, is that uh, President Biden needs to find his inner Ronald Reagan or channel his inner Winston Churchill. I mean, it seems that the the issue here is one of leadership and one of articulating goals clearly. And I agree that's part of the problem. I, I think the Biden administration perceives this problem correctly. I think they understand the stakes correctly. Um, I think you would probably agree with me on that. But you seem to say that there is a problem articulating that. That's half the problem. The other half is the configuration of our politics right now. You talked about this nihilist wing of the the American right. Um, there is an equally nihilist wing of the European right that is creating problems. Um, we see the supplemental tied up in Congress due to this nihilist right wing on in the Republican House uh, conference. You see this with Viktor Orban blocking European Union aid to Ukraine. And we've reached this. Now, I just if I can inject a little bit of optimism here and be the American optimist uh, in this in this, I, I see a path to getting the supplemental passed. I realize that is not a panacea that is not going to solve the whole problem. But without it, we're toast. Um, without it, where we 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 lose. So I see it, but but part of this is the politics. Do you think this clarity you talk about, this getting out of the comfort zone, this abandonment of, uh, in scare quotes, reasonableness, is what it's going to take to move the jammed up political systems in both the United States and Europe right now? I want to push back on just one thing you've said. You've said it in your view. The administration understands the stakes. I think I agree with most of that. But the problem is they don't articulate it. No, I think mm -hmm. the problem is deeper. 
I don't think they understand. They have drawn the conclusions from what they understand about what is actually required. Mm. It's not just articulation of the policy that is wrong. The policy is inadequate. The tools that have been made available are inadequate. The pacing and the timing and the sequence has all been inadequate. It has been a pattern all the way through a vacillation, temporizing, and caution. And where I do agree with you, of course, is that the United States is not alone. Now, at one level, I have to give credit to Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, because he has pushed very hard against his own innate cautiousness. And he has initiated this Zeitung vendor in Germany, which is a big thing, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's not, it's not a small thing. It's a very big thing. Even though, you know, the, the bottle was almost empty before. Now the bottle in Germany is more than half full. That's a major accomplishment. But again, he is innately cautious. The German Social Democrats are not only deeply divided, but even the Bart, which is the Bart, which you could deal with, is deeply cautious. The Italians are now vacillating all over the place. Where I agree very fully is that Europe, at least Western Europe, suffers from the same syndrome. The papers now are awash with the fact that we are near to a deal with Orban about unlocking the funds uh, mm-hmm. to funds to Ukraine. You don't have to read the small print. You just continue reading the large print to see that effectively the EU has given in to Orban on this. Mm-hmm. The whole point of this package was to set up a four-year package to give Ukraine the predictability and stability to be able to do what is necessary and to prioritize properly. And instead, what we've done to unblock Orban's immediate refusal to release this is to allow him to come back and block it next year. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sorry. That's not a success for the EU. That's a success for Orban. What does he conclude? I'll raise another character. I'll raise. I'll, I'll mention another name that you might not like. There is at least one thing that Putin, Orban, and I would add Netanyahu have in common. I would say two things. They understand power very well. Uh, they know what it is. They know how to use it. They understand very well instinctively whether the interlocutor understands it, whether they are dealing with strong people or weak people, whether they are dealing with with people who are firm, who know their own mind, who know what they want and know how to get it. And when they're dealing with people like that, they can become very pragmatic and almost reasonable. When they're dealing with weakness, they are the first people, by the way, they're the, they're the first people in the room to sense it, like sharks in the water sensing blood. And my God, do they exploit it. And they mean what they say. I mean, the EU, this is so typical, typical of a very liberal frame of mind. The EU believes that Orban's being difficult because all he wants is money. Well, he'd love to have money. But what they refuse to understand is that he believes what he says. He means what he says. There are also belief systems here. There are political objectives here. Things are not all about money. Erdogan is, I think, a different sort of character. I have someone for whom I have far deeper sympathy and respect because Turkey is in one of the most geopolitically dangerous neighborhoods in the world and is possible to envisage. And you've got to understand that geometry and be able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in many respects, he, he is the same. 
Uh, the moment he objected to first Finnish and now Swedish membership of NATO, all the usual people saying, oh, no, he just wants F-16s. It's all about a bargain. Uh, and it's just around the corner to being solved. Well, it's still not solved, is it? Because there are other concerns that are more important to him, and rightly so. So, um, anyhow, I agree with you. This is a problem facing the West as a whole. And if it doesn't feature so much in the Baltic states, in Finland, in Poland, it's because we're much closer to the problem and we're much closer to our own history. Yeah, you raised uh, James Orban and Erdogan, and I did, I wanted to quote another passage from your, your piece, which I thought was particularly insightful. You, you drew these parallels to the 1930s, um, which is, I'm reading a lot about the 1930s right now um, in the early 20th century, because I think there's a lot we can learn about our current moment from that. You write the following, um, and I'm quoting, as in the 1930s, feebleness abets cynicism and defeatism. Victor Orban flirts with the devil because he sees no angels in the room and no evidence that anyone will stand up to him. Erdogan undermines sanctions because he has lost faith in the resolution of the West and is unwilling to tie Turkey to the interests of losers. Trumpian nihilism now resounds across the vacuum of ideas. The consequences of such disarray is demoralization amongst those whose mobilization and support are urgently needed. The question today is not whether the West is doing what is required, but whether it is capable of doing so. Um, that is a very dark passage that uh, caused me to lose a little bit of sleep. You want to unpack it for me a bit? Well, that summarizes everything I think we've been talking about yes. in the past hour. That, I think, is unfortunately where we are. It's where our... It's where those who are put in, given the trust of leadership and the responsibility of leadership have taken us. And it is inevitable that if you are unsure about what your beliefs are, you are unsure about what your goals are, you're not going to be able to articulate goals that you're not sure of. That is inevitable. It is inevitable that there will be opposition. It is inevitable you will be ridiculed and misrepresented. It is inevitable that in this space, dangerous nostrums and ideas will grow up. So what is really needed on the part of our Western establishments, instead of bemoaning what you described as the political configuration and the opponents and everything else, and we could agree about what's wrong with them. Is and the social forces that are leading to this. I mean, that, that are All that, but you have to begin in facing the serious problem and looking in the mirror. And these people need to look in the mirror. And where they are being consistently misadvised, instead of trying to persuade the advisors to change their minds, they have to replace the advisors with others. And one more point about Biden, because I know you want to break. And I have to say something about him, which I firmly believe and I admire. He is a very principled man, and he has at times shown real strength. He has real strength inside him. I don't see around him people who are reminding him of that and reminding him of who he is and the necessity of being strong and the necessity of being courageous. He is not surrounded by those people and I think he has been seriously and deeply misadvised, not by everyone, but by a number of people inside his own administration. And forgive me for talking out of turn because you're in Washington, I am not. 
but that is but that is the way it that is the way it appears. And if Biden himself understands how serious this is, the question is: Is he now capable himself of looking in the mirror and asking, "Who am I really, and what do I need to do?" So finding his inner Harry Truman, if you will. Uh, yep, yeah, because I think some of it is there. Yeah, no, and I, we, we've long, and we've talked in this podcast endlessly over the past two years about the divisions in this administration between the more cautious National Security Council and the more assertive State Department and Defense Department. These things are very real. They're part of the configuration here in Washington, right? It's, you can't wish it away. It's there, right? These official, and it's not just specific officials. There are trends, secular trends in the elite about this. So it's it's a, it's a tricky proposition. That is not to excuse it, but it's an attempt to explain it, an attempt to think about how we get out of this logjam right now, because we are not where I wanted to be at this point. If you're going to have a, a strong and coherent policy, you need a cohesive administration. You need a Nixon-Kissinger-type duo, because you look at the, the, the impressive things that came out of that. Both of them, the synergy between them is what did it. The synergy between them is what opened China. The synergy between them is what shifted the balance against the Soviet Union. It's what uh, shifted Brezhnev's calculations. It was not one of them telling the other what to think. They were each very impressive in their own way, but they were able to work together and they could. I don't, you know, some administrations are like that. I think after 1962, the Kennedy administration was like that. The Reagan administration was pretty much like that. I mean, of course, there were shades and differences there, but they are not all like that, and this administration is not. I mean, I think you have that synergy between President Biden and Secretary Blinken. I think you have that. Now, that said, this administration is distracted with so many other things going on. The situation in the Middle East, Hamas, the Red Sea, there are a lot, and you say these are part and parcel of the same thing. I think if I I can anticipate you, correct? Well. You know, my it's my favorite line from The Exorcist when the younger priest says to the older priest, "I'm hearing, <laughs> I'm hearing that there are many devils here. I'm, I'm hearing many voices." And the older priest says, "No, there is only one." Mm-hmm. If when it comes to the most urgent and direct threat you face, which is Russia, and which is this war in Ukraine, and you th- and you show vacillation and uh, you. You shrink away from doing what is required. It is inevitable that your problems elsewhere will grow and that your other adversaries will diminish you. So it does come down. Of course, I would agree with anyone who who would say in the fullness of time, China is the most important, is the significant other we have. There's no doubt about it. But this equation gets worse and more unfavorable if you are unable to confront the immediate and most dangerous adversary you have now, and the one which, as I have said many times, is defeatable. Right. Again, and this not is yeah. not, not by staying in your comfort zone. It isn't. It's uh, defeatable. It's going to be tough. But war always is. And this is what I want to get into in the second half. Um, uh, where you where you talked about how we could do that. And again, 
this tracks with a lot of conversations I've been having with people about where this war is is going in the next year and possibly two. And so we'll shift to that now. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the bright side, including Russia's weaknesses and vulnerabilities and an optimistic scenario for what may be in store for 2024 and beyond. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in the chilly, magical, snowy Estonian capital city of Tallinn is the one and only James Scher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate a fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program of Chatham House and author of the book Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the website formerly known as Twitter at Power Vertical. Vertical, and now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And oh, by the way, the Power Vertical is in the process of setting up a new Substack. So keep an eye out for that going forward. На кожну спробу Росії збільшити свій тиск на нашу державу, на наших людей, на наші позиції буде наша адекватна. So, James, you concluded an otherwise bleak assessment of the situation in your article on a more or less optimistic note. I couldn't help but wonder whether your American half was showing there. <laughs> but um, but um, you write the following. The preconditions for peace and security in Ukraine are Russia's military defeat. If Russian forces are not driven out of Ukraine by force of arms, they will not leave. You then go on to outline various ways that Russia is actually quite vulnerable at the moment, particularly in the areas of energy and defense. Could you unpack this a little bit? Because I think this moves directly to where we may be headed in the coming year and possibly the year the year following. Um, let me again reformulate some of what you said so I could agree with more of it. I'm not being optimistic. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that a path to what I would recognize and what most and what President Zelensky would recognize as victory in Ukraine, a path is there and it is achievable and that Russian vulnerabilities are there and they matter. The second thing is the vulnerabilities are not so acute now. What I'm really calling attention to in this part of the analysis is the way the vectors are moving. Mm -hmm. We are now at a point and most of 2024 is going to this year is going to be like that where the the differential in various types of capabilities that matter will be very conspicuously in russia's favor and so for that reason 2024 is going to be the most difficult year and we have to think about it in completely unflinching and unforgiving terms uh, it means real choice, even if we do all the right things and press all the buttons that I want us to press, that we should have pressed years ago, there have to be certain disciplines. Ukraine has to, we 
we we we need to establish with the Ukrainians a uh, a viable and formidable strategic defensive and a strategic defensive posture. If we do that and prevent what is currently an attritional phase of war from moving more to Ukraine's disadvantage and build up Ukraine's strengths, then there is no question in my mind that the vectors, mm-hmm. the, the vector, the, the force vectors start to go in the other direction. Uh, again, and I come back, you know, to the very beginning of this discussion. Putin's proposition is that neither Ukraine nor the West can sustain a long-term contest. We now have to reconcile ourselves to a long-term contest. One piece of good news I didn't mention is, from my perspective, the Ukrainians have done that. You talk to anybody I know and any of the people I read in Ukraine, any of the experts, military experts and political military experts, they all understand this. There's no defeatism there. I'm not saying there's not, but there's not, not at any dimension, not to any extent starts to become worrying. There's a considerable realism about what is required and a willingness to play those costs and an understanding we're in this for the long term. The West needs to be in the same intellectual space as that. And again, we haven't prepared our publics for that. And I think then it's because we weren't prepared for it ourselves. We were so encouraged by the complete shambles Russia made of its initial mm. plan of invasion and attack, that we talked ourselves into believing that this would be something like a walk in the park. So no, this is a real war. Now, you go beyond this. So this is, you know, this is Putin's assumption. We can't sustain this in the long term. Once we demonstrate, yes, we can and we will, then things will turn around. And I think he is already aware of it because he understands, he understands Russia's vulnerabilities better than we are. Now, I highlighted two key areas. I'll stop talking for a moment so that... Uh, yeah, no, I want to drill into those, James, but also yeah. I'm smiling because, again, conversations I've been having here in Washington uh, toward the end of last year and the beginning of this year about all of this, very much track with what you're saying. The feeling is that if 2023 was Ukraine's year to make uh, to, to attempt to make gains, 2024 is going to be Russia's year. This is just these things go cyclically, right? And that what what needs to be done right now, and there is consensus among those who are, are that I that I at least as far as I can discern among those who are working on this, that that the, the the goal of 2024 is to make sure Ukraine has adequate defenses to withstand that, to put them in a position where in 2025 they might be able to make gains. So that's part of the picture. Also, the idea is that Ukraine isn't going to make great territorial gains this year. we got to reconcile ourselves to that fact. But it doesn't mean Ukraine can't do things that are going to impose costs on Russia, particularly with these attacks on Crimea, which, again, we're seeing um, play kind of play out. Um, I've, I've been having conversations and was expecting these things to happen, and we're starting to see them. And that sets Ukraine up nicely if we do this right. And again, a lot of buttons have to be pushed. A lot of things have to fall into place. That supplemental has to pass the U.S. Congress. The EU has to pass its trade, pa- its, its aid package. But if all of these things fall into place and we do this right and make sure that Ukraine can make the most of this year, turning the war of attrition to their advantage, it's harder to attack than to defend. If Ukraine's in the position to defend right now, that sets them up nicely in 2025 
to actually take back territory, to actually get to Melitopol, to actually split that land bridge. I perceive that um, Russia's strengths and advantages are already peaking. Therefore, again, I underscore, I'll use a different term, that the, the, the fundamental priority for Ukraine in 2024 is consolidation because Russian strengths are uh, Russia's strengths are already peaking. And what's interesting, you look into this at even the slightest depth, and what you will also see even today is that Russia lacks the force advantages, the capability advantages, to turn any of this into something operationally significant. They do not, despite all their efforts, have today the capacity to make uh, major gains, at least on the ground. Now, you know, that underscores again this critical vulnerability of air defense in Ukraine. They, mm-hmm. they, reason, they are going out of their way to obliterate civilian targets as they want to concentrate Ukraine's limited air defense af- uh, assets over cities, over civilian areas. So changing the air defense equation must have the highest priority that advantage is no longer going to be there. They will still, they will still cause hell and they're determined to. But all of these are things we could do. Now, if you, again, I think you decide when you want me to talk about the energy and defense sector. Yeah, no, let's drill into that because I think those vulnerabilities are, are, are actually important. I'm actually editing a paper by Vladimir Milov right now on the energy situation, which tracks with what you are saying here. Yeah. So let's let's drill into the energy and the, and the defense uh, procurement bits. Well, again, we have to push back against what is now a deep-seated negativism in the West about both of these um, critical areas. Um, first, we talked ourselves into a set of optimistic assumptions about sanctions, which are quite rightly disproportionately targeted against um, technologies and capabilities relevant to energy and defense. And of course, the Russians, the damage was much less than we expected. The Russians were much more adept than we expected in devising workarounds in working together with partners, uh, in sabotaging the system that we that we created. The, the whole business of sanctions and opposition to sanctions, it's very interesting. It's like the COVID virus. It's like any virus. A, you devise antibodies, then the virus mutates and throws something new at you, and you this race, this, this constant race. But underneath it, if you forget sanctions, the big point, you look at energy, is that, and I think Vladimir Milov would agree with me, this whole sector is in deep trouble, and for secular reasons, it is sinking. So, you know, the Western Siberian gas fields, they are just at the near the bottom. There is uh, immense concern in the West that Russia now has major um, export markets in India and China that it didn't have before. Uh, the EU centered sanctions. But look at what the Indians and Chinese are paying. The Chinese are paying half the price that the EU was paying before. And the Chinese are insisting, because they're not doing this for the, you know, as the Russians say, for the sake of Russia's blue eyes. The Chinese are insisting on lowering the price. They have refused to fund the power of Siberia 2 pipeline, 
which is a necessity for Russia, but it's not a necessity for China. So the Chinese don't care. Chinese are, you know, matters great and small. They're concerned about Sibya. They're concerned about mm -hmm. So this is not a happy picture at all. And this is a massive, massive, we're talking about uh, a sector which is the principal contributor to revenue streams in Russia. Uh, and it is sinking. And the Chinese are not rescuing it. So that's energy. And I think Vladimir Milov and I would, you know, be both. Yeah, no, you're basically on the same page there. Uh, Mikhail Kritikin has uh, written a very sharp analyses of all this. He comes to the same conclusions. Uh, Pavel Bayev, a whole range of who I think understand this very well. Uh, our own picture needs to be, uh, our own perspective about this needs to be more hopeful than it is. Now you look at defense. Wow. Uh, we're told by everybody that, you know, the Russians have doubled defense production. Well, no, they haven't. There are plans to do X, Y, and Z. But again, if you drill into it, and there's some um, analysts, by the way, a number of the Russian, they're no longer living, who have done this very thoroughly. And they've just pointed out one obvious thing they pointed out is that none of these increased uh, this increased funding we're looking at takes account of inflation, which is enormous, or accounting tricks which are being used, including uh, accounting people with no arms and legs and counting people who are dead to all intents and purposes. All this about fourth strengths and the, um, the consistently poor quality of a lot of production, the horribly shoddy quality of the still relatively small amount that is being received from North Korea. You got to admire what they're doing with what they have, uh, but this is not an encouraging picture from their point of view. And you look at these trends and you project them beyond twenty four, well through twenty twenty five. Uh, it's a pretty worrying picture for Russia, and we need to understand that. So this is not a time for us to be saying, "Oh, Russia can't be defeated," and you know, Russia is about to win this war. Uh, it would be an absolutely absurd thing to do and to draw elaborate conclusions from and many wrong-headed conclusions from Ukraine's uh, counter-offensive of last summer would be like stopping the clock after the Dieppe raid and, and saying it's not going to be possible for the Allies to invade Europe. Again, all this analysis is very static. It's being made by people who have forgotten what a long war at industrial scales is light. And who also have airbrushed us out of the equation. People keep talking as if we are not the key protagonist here. We are not the key enabler, as the United States was in the case of the UK, which underwrote Britain financially and militarily throughout the entire war. Do you know where the maximum number of British civilians died? It died after Lend they died after Lend-Lease ended in the winter of 46, 47. That's how dependent for so many years the UK was on the United States. Now, does that diminish Britain's contribution to the war? No, it was magnificent, but it, it depended on support. This is not unique. Good heavens, I, you know, I, I wish there were more people in the political class of Western Europe and the United States who knew something about history, even recent history, <laughs> who could put some of their anxieties in some sort of perspective. Do you realize after the Second World War, 
one senior British cabinet minister had a physical breakdown because of the stresses he was under, and they had a nervous breakdown. I believe there was a US Secretary of Defense who had a nervous breakdown because things looked so bleak after the war, when the one thing we hadn't counted upon was uh, a Soviet threat in Europe, and suddenly it was there. We forget all of this. We have no right to forget that. Yeah, and let's just hope the muscle memory is is still there. But James, what you seem to be saying is that contrary to the conventional wisdom, a long war, as long as the West becomes and remains cohesive, a long war does not favor Russia because of these secular trends. Exactly. Uh, the If the political will can be summoned, we could win a long war. That's what you seem yeah, to be saying. I have said from the beginning that as long as we do what is required, time in this war favors Ukraine. It does not favor Russia. I have regained that confidence in this entire year of bleakness. No, one of the reasons your piece really caught my attention is because, again, I've been having these discussions about setting realistic expectations about what we are up against right now and what needs to be done, and that this is going to be a long war, and there is not going to be some magical breakthrough um, like we were expecting last year, and the Ukrainian forces aren't going to get unexpectedly suddenly right away to Melitopol and split the land bridge and liberate all territory up to the 1991 borders. Uh, that could happen in the long run, but it ain't happening in the short run. And to to have a, a realistic theory of success in Ukraine, to have a realistic theory of victory in Ukraine, these discussions are going on in Washington to add to inject some optimism into this discussion, these discussions are going on. I have been privy to some of these discussions. And this is, this, this, I, I think people are beginning to get it. You're right. It is not being articulated uh, very well uh, what the, what, what, what the stakes truly are. But these discussions are happening. I think if we can get through this year, 2025 can look very bright indeed for the Ukrainians. Would you agree? I wouldn't go so far as to use the term like, Right. 2025, I think if we do the right things and we understand this correctly, will be the year that restores our confidence mm. and could be a critical year more Russia. All of these, um, these so-called permanent strengths that Russia has uh, will start to look very shaky and these, limit and these limitless resources that Russia supposedly has will be seen in their true dimensions. Russia does not have limitless resources. No country has. I, I just want to add one more point, because I know we're getting towards the end. Um, you have to give him credit um, and, and has to admire the analysis behind what, for want of a better word, one could call Russian strategy. Putin has understood that his fortunes depend very heavily on the not only the enlistment of other partners, open and covert and de, fact and de facto of Russia, but on the enlistment of other situations in the world that are damaging to U.S. interests to end this war, which is why I think when you last had me on, you were discussing an article I wrote entitled Putin's Gaza Front. Yes. And just how interested he was and is in that situation. Iran might not be looking forward to a war between the United States and Iran. Some in Russia might be looking forward to it. I'm mm -hmm. not saying it's a more complex equation than many people think, but he would love the United States to be paralyzed by the fear of a war with Iran. 
by and uh, he certainly is the last person to be worried or concerned about what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea right now. This is what he wants. This is this is what the Russians understand as strategic diversion. Any fundamental threat to Israel constitutes a strategic diversion of effort from Ukraine because of what that actually means. All parts of the American polity, a fundamental threat to Israel. The Russians understand this. You know, Hamas understands that. Iran understands that. Yes. We need to understand that a lot of other things that are going on in this war in this world have a relationship to what is happening in Ukraine. I think Dmitry Trenin in Russia will agree with me if I say that in all of this, in what is ultimately for Russia, a, a so-called, a so far hybrid war against the West, Ukraine is what Clausewitz would call the center of gravity. If we lose that, everything else starts yep. to unravel. If we win that, we can reconsolidate ourselves and put all of our adversaries on the back foot. It's as straightforward as that. No, I think that's 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 very, very, very well said. And normally I'd like to close out on something like that, but there is one more point I wanted to just briefly hit on, uh, if, if, if I may. You talked about the, the fallacy of negotiations, right, in your piece. And again, to quote from the piece, you say, yet so long as Russia treats negotiations as a theater of war, its terms will expand or contract like forces on the battlefield. Moreover, if an agreement does emerge, what mechanisms of enforcement will underpin it? And you kind of use the Minsk one and two agreements as instruction videos, if you will, here. Now, all wars end in negotiation. The talk I'm hearing right now is to get Ukraine into the best possible position so they'll they'll have the upper hand in negotiations. How do you view this? Do you see this maximalistly that, that anything short of 1991 borders is a strategic defeat? Or how, how are you looking at this? What below the threshold of 1991 borders is acceptable? How should we be thinking about negotiations? We're far away from the, that day, but that day will inevitably come. As briefly as possible, push back on myself as well as you. What I'm arguing against is the belief that negotiations will solve this issue. Uh, Sam Green, who is now in the United States, who was a highly respected Russian, certainly by me, who was at King's College for a long time, recently said something very astute. Wars might end in negotiations, but negotiations do not end wars. That is why I'm not the only one who insists Russia must be militarily defeated. And there will be a time for negotiations. But that time will come when Russia sues for peace because it is because Russia itself is so afraid of what happens if there is not some kind of negotiated framework. Don't forget one other thing here. If you look, go back to the time when Primakov became Primakov became foreign minister. He said the first foreign policy priority of Russia was the stability and coherence of the multinational Russian Federation. Well, most of us, most people in the States, well, that's internal policy. No, what the Russians understand is this is not an inherently stable entity. And as Russia gets weak, it starts to look less stable and foreign powers might be tempted to come in and play games with it. Now, if Russia's defeated in Ukraine, 
there are going to be more and more concerns, I think, inside Russia about the integrity of Russia. Well, that would be a good time for negotiation, wouldn't it? So mm-hmm. I'm not saying negotiations are always wrong, but they have to serve a political objective. And we have to judge whether when when the time is right to have a negotiation, to lock in a political objective and prevent things from getting worse and get into a kind of war we don't want to get into. I know, and you know, we have no national interest in destabilizing the Russian Federation. Right. Right. And there are some people who want to do that. I think, forgive me, I think it is a fool's errand. I mean, I, I have real disagreement with this. But the Russians worry about it. So when the time is right, we have certain, you know, we have real strengths here. Okay? We just have to get the relationship right. Negotiation is not a panacea, and we should stop talking about it in the way that we do and focus instead on what is required to defeat the enemy. And that is a great way to wrap it up, my friend. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in the magical, snowy, chilly Estonian capital of Tallinn has been the one and only James Sher, a senior fellow at the International Center for Defense and Security. James is also an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House and author of the book, Hard Diplomacy and Soft Coercion, Russia's Influence Abroad. James, as always, thank you for an enlightening discussion and for making me and our listeners a lot smarter. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legans is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Jareel Rahman handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can still follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can also now follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical. And as I said, the Power Vertical is in the process of setting up a new substack. It's a work in progress at the moment, so keep an eye out for that going forward. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. <laughs>